Live from the Old Church Concert Hall in Portland, Oregon, it's Portland Story Theater's Urban Tellers. May the narrative be with you. February 9th, 2010, I received the hardest job I've ever had. The job description is as follows. You have to be compassionate, have empathy, be able to make life and death decisions in a relatively quick period of time. You have to be a great communicator. You have to communicate with a lot of people across the country. You have to be a good driver because you're going to be doing a lot of driving. And you have to be the best cheerleader you've ever been in your life. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, how much am I going to get paid for this job? Oh, no. Mm -mm. <laughs> Actually, you're going to be paying twenty dollars to $25,000 a year to have this position. My wife Amy and I were sitting on our white, comfy couch in Selwood when she told me that she was just diagnosed with breast cancer at the age of 40. I held her in my arms as she cried, tears rolling down my eyes, <clears throat> and my mind was just racing nonstop. You know, what does this mean? Is she going to live? Is she going to die? Or can we afford it? What about insurance? I mean, what about all our future plans? I mean, she's 40. And in my infinite wisdom, I slowly pushed away from her and I said, Amy, cancer is not going to define us. Seven days later, sitting on that same couch, Amy looks me in the eyes and she says, honey, we are literally surrounded by cancer right now. And as we looked at all the pamphlets and the notes from the doctor visits and the books we're supposed to read and all the appointments that have been scheduled, and we looked at each other and laughed and said, well, that didn't take long. <clears throat> I won't get into all the details about Amy's cancer, but I will tell you a few things. Amy had cancer for 989 days. She had 127 doctor visits, which does not include any chemo appointments, blood draws, or scans. She had four surgeries, one lung biopsy. She had eight different chemo regimens. And she had the privilege, as she called it, to lose her hair twice. <clears throat> and to add insult to injury, our house was going into foreclosure. So to say that there was a level of stress in our house would have been the understatement of the year. It was like we were living in a pressure cooker. Bad scan, chemo's not working, complications from surgery, and the pressure would just up, up, up. Bank calling for another payment, and then bam! the lid would pop off and you'd find yourself arguing about the stupidest shit. And I can tell you as, as a husband and as a man, arguing with your wife when she's completely bald puts a whole different level on guilt and shame. And there were many times I felt like a complete asshole. <clears throat> One of the things that got us through all this is our sense of humor. Now, Amy had a better sense of humor than I did. She had made it through her first eight rounds of chemo, which took about five months. <clears throat> and then she had to get strong enough to have a mastectomy. And we were up at OHSU, and they 
put us in this amazing room. It's like we just looked out across to Mount Hood. You could see the Willamette River, the tram going back and forth. It was this beautiful sunny day. And the discharge nurse came into the room to tell us what needs to happen when we leave. And I was sitting in the chair, and Amy and the discharge nurse were across from me. <clears throat> and the discharge nurse is saying, okay, well, so you have these drains coming out of you. You need to take, this is how you take care of those. You need to stay on top of that. Here's the medication that you need to take and when you need to take it. And, you know, you have breast cancer. And Amy goes, what? <laughs> I have breast cancer? And the look on this guy's face was just like, like, am I the first person who's told her this? Like, <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's Amy. That's who she was. <clears throat> so things went along pretty well for the next four months. Um, and we went in for a regular checkup. And she said to the oncologist, well, I've been feeling a little tired lately, more so than usual. He says, well, let's just do a scan, see what happens, see what comes back. So four days later, phone rings and it's the oncologist and he says, I hate to tell you this, but your breast cancer is metastasized. It's gone into your lungs and into your bones, mostly in your spine. So we need to start chemo again. We had been going through this at this point for about 18 months and I was pissed when it came back. I was angry, I was lonely, I was resentful. It's like, what the hell, man? And somebody suggested to me that maybe I should start seeing a therapist. And so I went to see a therapist up at OHSU who specialized in dealing with people who were caretakers or spouses of people that were fighting, battling cancer. And I would go in there every week and I would bitch and complain and cry and laugh and just to get all this shit out of me that I couldn't really say at home. Because I had to be that cheerleader, I had to be that strong person, I had to be the supportive one. And every couple of months, every month, they would change her chemo, and then they'd do a scan. And I will tell you, of all the scans we had, not one time were they positive. Never. Chemo's not working. Amy had triple negative breast cancer, which the only way you can deal with that is through chemo and surgery. At the time, I'm not sure now, but at the time it was the worst possible breast cancer you could have. So I would keep going to the therapist and she would keep trying different chemos and, and one of the things that Amy requested of all of us from the, in the very beginning is that nobody was to ask for a prognosis. She didn't want any of us to know because she felt that if she was told that she was going to die that we would all give up. And in the beginning that was easy. You'll, you'll go through the chemo, you know, we'll just get through this, I don't need to know a prognosis. But now, 20 plus months into it, shit's not going well. Like, I want a prognosis. And I managed to honor that request from her. <clears throat> but it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And at one point in the therapist's office, I said out loud, I just wish she would die. Like, I can't live this way forever. It was tearing me apart. And the therapist looked at me and said, you aren't the first person to say that and you won't be the last person to say that in this office. And it made me feel like, as horrible as that sounded, that it, like, it was okay to say that stuff. 
I needed that in my life. So <clears throat> we had this trip coming up to Maui. It's a semi-annual family trip where all my sisters come. We're fortunate enough to have a timeshare in Maui. And, uh, and so they stopped chemo to get her better so she could go to Maui. And about two weeks before we were supposed to go, we went in for this checkup, and she told the oncologist that she's been seeing these black spots in her vision, which I had not heard before. And he said, well, let's just do a brain scan just to make sure everything's okay. <clears throat> and he said, we're going to get the results back before you go to Maui. Do you want those results before you go, or do you want to wait till we get back? And she says, hell no, I can't be in Maui knowing that you know something that I don't know, so I want the results before we go. So three days before we're supposed to go, I'm sitting in the parking lot of the post office in Selwood, and my phone rings, it's the oncologist. And he says, I hate to tell you this, but the cancer has spread to her brain. And we don't think it's a good idea for her to go to Maui. So <clears throat> I went home. I elected to be the one who told her that the cancer had gone to her brain. And for the first time in this whole process, I saw fear in her eyes. It was tragic news. So <clears throat> radiation, this is a whole new animal. Five days a week for 21 days, 15 minutes at a time. She would go in and have radiation shot into her head. And at near the end of those three weeks, something had changed. I just, her, she just looked a lot different, not for the better. So on October 22nd of 2012, her pain management doctor came to our house, which is crazy to think about these days, the doctor coming to your house. Her mom was there, me, her sister, her sister's husband. And we're all sitting on that same white couch. We knew what he was going to tell her. She didn't. And he told her that they were stopping treatment, that, there was no, that they had no way to cure what was going on with her. So basically, you're going to die from breast cancer. I, I don't have any words to describe how surreal it is to be in a room when someone who's 42 years old being told that they're gonna die. <clears throat> the silence was deafening at first, and then the tears started, and eventually Amy made some sort of silly joke to try to make everybody feel better, because that's what she did. And hospice came in the next day. On October 25th, at 6.30 in the morning, Amy's mom woke me out of a deep sleep and told me that Amy was passing. And I jumped out of bed, and I had all these thoughts going through my head, like, she can't, she can't be, shouldn't be happening this quick. Like, we never got to talk about dying. What, what does she want? Does she want a funeral? Does she want to be cremated? I, we, I had no idea. Like, did I get to say goodbye? Because when I saw her the night before, I didn't say goodbye. I just said, I'll see you in the morning. I had no idea. And I ran into the room, and I laid down next to her, and then I heard the most horrific sound I've ever heard in my life, the death rattle. I don't know why I didn't know about this. I don't know why anybody didn't tell me about this, 
but I've never heard it before. And if you think that the body doesn't have a will to live, then you probably haven't heard a death rattle. And it went on for an hour and 42 minutes, basically. And I laid next to her, and I whispered in her ear the entire time, it's okay to go, we're all gonna be okay, it's okay. And she passed away at 8 a.m. on October 25th, six days shy of her 43rd birthday. Now, it's not shocking to me that Amy died in the morning because Amy hated getting up in the morning. Hated it. I couldn't get her out of the house before noon, ever. So Amy did things her way, and that's when she wanted to die was in the morning. It was like sometimes I felt like I was living with these magical elves. I would go to bed, and I'd get up in the morning, and all this stuff would happen while I was asleep. She was a total night owl. After the funeral, people came up to me and told me that you're going to see Amy again. It's going to be in a dream. It's going to be so vivid. When you wake up, you're, you're going to feel like that she should be sitting there right next to you. And I kept waiting for that to happen, and it never happened for me. Just these little snippets of her would show up in these dreams, but never as vivid as I was hoping for. I would go to sleep praying that that, that, that would happen. <clears throat> well, it happened last week. Dealing with this story, I'm sure it brought up all this stuff, and we were walking down the street, and Amy had all of her hair. She had really beautiful, long brown hair. And the energy in the dream was like, sort of like a first date. It was kind of giddy and exciting and, you know, like, it was just, it was cool. And I looked at her at one point and I said, are you okay? And she reached up to me. She would always put her hand on my heart whenever we were having difficult times. And she reached up to me and she said, honey, I'm okay. I'm going to be okay. And that's all I ever wanted to hear.